And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Green light 3-0 and she's gone! Welcome to The 3-0 Show, part of The Athletic Baseball Show. It is Thursday, June 8th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Richard Rowley off this week. On this episode, we will discuss the season-ending injury for Jacob deGrom. We'll talk about his future and what this means for the Rangers, an organization that's off to a fantastic start, the best start in franchise history here in 2023, and a team that certainly has playoff aspirations and I think with its fast start probably has World Series aspirations as well. We're going to dig into an A1 story that Eno had published on The Athletic on Thursday as well. Where are the strikeouts coming from? It's a great mystery. Eno dug into it, so we'll get into that and a few other topics along the way as well. But Eno, we begin today with Jacob deGrom. Elbow surgery, of course, is on tap. It will likely be his second Tommy John surgery. There is a possibility of an internal brace, but they'll know once the surgery is actually performed if it's the ligament replacement or possibly both. As we have learned, that's a thing that happens now, too, to help stabilize things. Once a pitcher works his way back from this injury, this is a Rangers team that went 6-0 and to Grom's six starts this season. He's the best pitcher in baseball when healthy. I don't think that's a controversial take whatsoever. And he's had a Tommy John before, way back after the 2010 season. So given his age and everything we know about Jacob DeGrom, what's the outlook for him long term as he tries to get back from what is likely a second career Tommy John? It's a difficult one. There's not that many players out there who've had two Tommy John surgeries. Uh, Jose Rio uh, might have had four. <laughs> we we actually don't have uh, great data on or, or descriptions of the surgeries he's had, so he's on that list. Johnny Venters had three. It did not work out for him the third time. Uh, but the two, the list of two, uh, is also an up and down list. Uh, it includes Hong Shin Kuo and Hunjin Ryu, who we don't know how that second one has uh, affected him yet because uh, he's coming back from it. And also relievers like Todd Coffey at all. And, um, you know, the the prognosis is always worse for your second Tommy John surgery. Uh, but there's a he's a little bit on a very short list when it comes to the fact that it was 13 years between his Tommy John surgeries, uh, you know, it's not a revision or a busted uh, new ligament. I mean, it is technically, but it's 13 years in, so it's, it's taken a while to get here. Uh, and he's also uh, on the older side. So, you know, these two things uh, make it risky. But, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is will he pitch the same when he comes back in terms of there's two things he did that really put a lot of stress on his arm. And we've looked at um, or maybe three things actually, but, uh, we've looked at, you know, direct stress on the ligament. We can do this now. We have these sleeves. We can put pitchers in, we can ask them to throw and we can measure the stress on the elbow in Newton meters and tell you what puts the most stress on your elbow. Number one, velo. So he went from 95, six to 99 sitting 99, uh, in his late twenties to his early thirties. So that's stressor on the elbow. And a little, a secondary aspect of that is sitting closer to your personal max. So everyone's 96 is not the same. If I'm throwing 96 and uh, my max is 98, that's different if I'm, if someone else is throwing 96 and their max is 100. Um, so he was throwing very close to his maximum. And the third thing is sliders actually put less stress on your elbow uh, than, than high velocity fastballs, except if you account for velocity per mile per hour 
sliders put more stress on your elbow. So what happens when you throw a 93, 94 mile an hour slider like Jacob deGrom? That actually might be one of the more stressful pitches in baseball on the elbow. So uh, will he throw his fastball 93, 94? Will he throw 99 when he comes back? Will he take a different approach? Uh, Chris Sale, Aaron Nola, these are pitchers that have in the past said, I'm not going to throw as hard on purpose. And I'm going to leave some in the tank for health reasons or for pitch clock reasons or whatever. Both times, both pitchers stopped doing it. You know why? Because it didn't work as well as they thought it would work. It worked as good. (laughs) I mean, it's a great idea in theory. Well, this will preserve my career. I'll stay healthier. I'll get another contract. All of those things are good. We want pitchers to stay healthy and get paid. And if you're not as effective, then you're not going to make the money that you would make if you stayed healthy and pitched the way you were pitching before. So that is the uh, chicken and egg problem that pitchers are still dealing with. With DeGrom, I used to think that he was a younger pitcher by usage than his actual age because he was a two-way player back in college and wasn't pitching full-time early in that part of his career. So relative to the typical player at every age, I'm like, you know, maybe this guy is going to pitch until he's 40, 41, 42 if he doesn't have major arm trouble. It's possible we could see him pitching again at some point in 2024. I think more likely sitting here today, the expectation is opening day 2025 as a target. Again, once the surgery happens and the extent of the surgery is known, more details will be clear. And then, of course, the rehab is going to be the, the other tell. The normal thing has been to sort of push it into the 13th and 14th month. Um, so, you know, that would have him coming back in, you know, late August, uh, early September next year. But if they're, again, if they're in this position as they are now, uh, late next year, they may want to have him back, even if it is three innings at a time or whatever it is, uh, because they may be headed towards the playoffs. Yeah. Walker Bueller coming back from his second Tommy John this season, right? And early reports are encouraging, but we're talking about a guy who's doing that at age 28, Bueller turns 29. This summer, Jacob deGrom turns 35 here in 11 days. So uh, a lot to be determined. Now, this Rangers team is sitting with 90.8 projected wins for the season. That is tied with the Astros. If you look at the Fangraphs World Series odds, they're just above 5%, which is probably the highest they've been in eight, nine years for the Rangers. This is a team that did a lot to get better as it kind of concluded its rebuild. And when you start to drill into... Why are the Rangers good? My first thought was, oh, the young talent they'd been acquiring via trade and drafting and developing for these last few years during this rebuild. Most of that talent got to the big leagues, and then they supplemented that with some big free agent signings going back to last offseason when they added Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager. And of course, they added even more this offseason. But the young core that they have on the roster is much smaller than you'd think. I was looking as of this morning, only six out of 26 players on their active roster were drafted or signed as international free agents by the Rangers. Josh Young, their eighth overall pick back in 2019. There's your big prospect from the group. Uh, Leody Tavares was an international free agent signing back in 2015. Jose Leclerc, way back in 2010. He's been around. He's a reliever. Cole Reagans, 30th overall pick in 2016. Bullpen. John King, 10th rounder in 2017, bullpen. And Martin Perez, who left and eventually came back back. as a free agent. (laughs) So we're going to count him just because it seems like it's more appropriate to do that. But I mean, this is a team that was bad for a five-year stretch from 2018 to 2022. They won 275 games during that time. The Orioles, who ripped it down to the studs, won 261. So the Rangers were pretty bad prior to this return back to... uh, very competitive level. So I guess my my question for you is, as you try to evaluate this team without DeGrom, and again, they've spent a ton of money in free agency. They've spent that money very well. They've been sharp in trades. Do you think they are still clearly an all-in, keep going for it now sort of team? Because they are older than you'd expect them to be for a team coming off of basically a five-year rebuild. Oh, 100%. This is a team to, to build, build to win now. And 
I have two minds here. I, I would also like to throw Ezekiel Duran uh, on that list just because he's been useful for them. He's come up, he's played, he's been better than I thought he'd be, and he's been a, a part of this. And I'd say there's a this is a, a Two Face. Who's that? You know the guy Two Face from Batman. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a Two Face thing here. I think on the positional side, this is it's going really well, actually. You know identify like Adolis Garcia is not my type of player in terms of the way his this plate discipline leaves me cold he chases a lot but um they've they've gotten a lot out of him you know and I think they found a way that he's 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 a real important cog to this and I think that's even though he didn't come up all the way through their system you know, he, he was acquired sort of halfway through his development process. I think it's a bit of a development win for them that he's done so well in given this situation. I would say that Duran and Jung are development wins for them in terms of these are players that can play in the major leagues at like a league average type uh, uh, or better. And Jung might might be a real a real star. Um, I think these are all, uh, I think those are de- development wins. And I think they paired that with those signings in a really smart way where they, t- they made the signings maybe a year before everyone understood why, uh, because they knew these guys were coming up. And so these guys are coming up and they're supplementing when someone's hurt, uh, when Corey Seager's hurt, Ezekiel Duran comes up and he's pretty good. And that keeps them alive as opposed to just going in the tank when one of their guys is hurt, you know? So on the position player side, I see a lot of things they do well. Um, and, uh, they've developed some guys, they've bought some young guys and plugged them in. It looks pretty good on the pitching side. uh, I'm a little bit worried because they've, they have gone with a little bit of the mercenary approach there too, where they've, they've brought in the, 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 the top end, uh, not, not quite mid, mid level, uh, free agents. It's not Seager and Simeon, but it's Eovaldi and Gray and Perez. Like they brought these guys in and, and free agency and that's fine. I don't know if Eovaldi's an ace, and I think a lot of times uh, that ace with a capital A is like a a young guy that you that's coming up and just you can't hit him. You know what I mean? Like the the league hasn't seen him a ton. He's still throwing ninety eight. You know, like I don't know. I think of when Wood when uh, 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 was it the Brewers guy Wood uh, Woodruff Woodruff came up. You know, and, and Burns when he came up. That's like an ace with a capital A. And sometimes I feel like that really comes from within. Uh, um, and they have had some high picks within. They have uh, tried to acquire young pitchers and trades. I don't see as much success on the pitching side. You know, and a, another way of saying that is you look at that bullpen. They should be producing. If you have a really good player development system, you you produce you produce relievers. They might have an okay one. I mean, a guy like. Um, uh, I forget his. I'm, I'm looking at his name. It's Garrett Anderson. It's not. It's Grant Anderson. They have a guy like Grant Anderson come up, and uh, he's pretty good actually. And uh, they, if you have good player development, you create these guys. The Rays are built on this idea that they can create Grant Andersons over and over again. You know, um, and that's that's true for them. The Rangers have have one Grant Anderson and maybe one Josh Spores. So we're maybe we're seeing the pitching development change a little bit and maybe it's getting better but i'm still waiting for like a a, like an internal starting pitcher win you know what i mean yeah i mean i think the thing that's really surprising too when you look at what they've done they've had that success even before the last couple of off seasons in the second tier of starting pitcher free agency that's where nathan evaldi came from it's where john gray came from years ago it was lance lynn mike minor i mean it goes it goes back before they were good they were shopping in that bin and doing really well And a lot of this goes to a bigger conversation where if we were going to say, how do we measure a front office's overall ability to succeed or like their secret sauce? Like, How do we grade decision making in baseball? What are we looking at? I mean, you look at how well a team drafts, how well a team does in international free agency, how well you do in big league free agency, how well you trade is really important. It's hard to grade, but it's important. How well you dig into the waiver wire and find players that get cast off other teams that you can either pick up and then develop or even just pick up and plug right into a spot and actually end up with some surplus value that way. And then, of course, there's player development in all of this. And then even player development just alone is such a huge area. Where How much credit does the front office get for the actual work being done by coaches 
at various levels. Well, they put the coaches in place, so you wouldn't give the front office a ton of credit for that. You'd give the coaches the credit for that. But it's it's always the GM or the president of baseball operations who who ultimately gets the blame when it goes wrong and the credit when it goes right. That's just part of the gig. But you're also creating an organization that has communication pathways. And so you were the guy who hired or the person who hired the the, the, the analysts. Uh, and you're the person who facilitates the discussion between the analysts and the coaches. And so therefore, you hired the coaches, you hired the analysts, and it's the information goes from the analysts to the coaches, to the players. So you're responsible for putting these processes in place. So I, and, and, and in fact, like, you know, where does the definition of front office even end, right? Does it include, does it include the analysts? If it does, then you get a lot of credit for that. Does it include coaches? That's usually coaching staff, quote unquote, but um, Really, you know, I almost think of front office as a much larger umbrella, which includes, you know, any non-player, uh, you know, in the organization is 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 effectively part of the front office because they're part of the process of 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 anybody who's like has anything to do with play on the field in some way, but is not a player. That would be front office to me. But you know, I think it's really difficult because all those things you just listed, you could figure out sort of ways to do it. Like so you could say. How well do you draft? Like I, when I worked with Mark Carrig on a piece about Brian Cashman, who I think is a good general manager. I think he's a very good general manager. But uh, you know, if you judge him by by like world championships, then you know, does he come short? Um, and dollars per win, maybe he comes short because they spend a lot. But uh, you know, when we looked at who in the major leagues what organization were they drafted by? All the players in the major leagues, who were they drafted by? Who were they signed by? And what we found was the top three teams were the Yankees, the Cardinals, and uh, the Rangers. And um, that's cool, but like, how far back do you give credit? I mean, AJ Preller is now the Padres' general manager. He was a big part of why the Rangers did so well in drafts and did so well on signings, right? Um, so, you know, if you just look at every player in the big leagues, now you're looking at 33 year olds and 35 year olds and, um, you're giving credit to front offices that drafted them 10 years ago. So, uh, the devil's in the details a little bit. If you really want to nail this, I almost feel like you have to do a five-year window and that's going to cut off some people where you drafted them five, you drafted them six years ago. Or you 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 draft them two years ago and they're not in the big leagues yet. You know, like it's it's really hard to judge anything. But if you go past five years, then you're just you're giving other people credit. You know, <laughs> you're right. giving the wrong groups credit. But I think you could do something where you look at, you know, anybody who's been in the big leagues less than five five years or less, who drafted them? Okay you know, look at those, those rankings and say, okay, you know, the Braves seem like they're really good at, at scouting, right? I would, I would just assume that, you know, whatever scouting grade, uh, we've, we've put down there, uh, the Braves are near the top. Who, what other teams do you think scout really well? The Dodgers. The Cardinals seem pretty good at just creating major leaguers, right? They have been for a long time. They've given away a lot of, of major leaguers. I mean, Adelis Garcia yeah. was in their system. It was cash, yeah. cash considerations that brought him to Texas. And he's Randy turned Rosarena. into a player. Yeah, Randy Rosarena for the Rays was kind of just one of the pieces of a trade. He wasn't the focal point of that trade. And we were looking at the Rays in their recent drafts. And, you know, you know they, they picked late in the first round, but there's been a lot of misses. And what was it you found basically Josh Lowe and Shane McClanahan? I mean, for, for for the early for the first round hits, you can hit in later rounds too. I mean, Cleveland does that really well. Cleveland mm-hmm. gets guys like Shane Bieber and Tanner Bybee and turns them into very good big league starters or excellent big league starters. And if you draft those guys third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round, it's even more valuable to find them later, right? I mean, again, we're now we're turning. We're looking at production for, for dollars, which feels gross, and I don't like doing it that way. But now you're also looking at production per slot, which is actually maybe player development. Right. Right? Because, the, yes, your scouts, this is why it's so intertwined. Your scouts, I said, Shane Shane Bieber is, is better than this draft slot. Let's draft him. So they get a little bit of credit. But then your development staff got Shane Bieber from, like, what was he, 89 miles an hour, you know? 
uh, to 94 and, uh, and refined that breaking ball and, and, and made him, you know, part, part was the player did the work, of course, but that part is never going to, that part's always going to be chaos in whatever system we're trying to put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but then the, the coaching staff gets a lot of credit for Shane Bieber. You could do something like incoming draft grades. Uh, you know, most places will at least have a future value grade on, on a player be like that. You know, the, the scouting grade is 20 to 80. They'll say, this is a 45 player, right? And you could take you could take those those draft day grades uh, from Baseball America and then say who outperformed those draft day grades and who underperformed those and and just basically attach a player to his draft day grades and and find a way of comparing those and then giving players credit. I would assume who do you think are a really good player development? I mean. Again, the Dodgers. This is why the Dodgers win all these games. We gave them scouting in the top, and and now we're going to give them uh, player development. But I think the Rays are good. The Astros. Astros are great at it. Yeah. Took five thousand dollar pitchers. That's another way of looking at it. It's like you you spent five thousand dollars on Luis Garcia, and you got a major league pitcher out of it. You know. Um, so uh, I think the Astros are great at it. I think the Yankees are decent. I think the Mariners' pitching development uh, looks like a strength. Um, so those are, those are teams that come to mind. The Brewers are, are a wild card for me, maybe on the pitching side, but on the hitting side, who's a, a real win for the Brewers internally? I'm not sure, sir. Not so sure. Was well, Brandon Woodruff supposed to be this good? He was at 11th no. round pick out of college. They added four or five ticks to his, right. to his velo. That's a huge success story. Corbin Burns, I think had more pedigree. He was always outstanding spin rates. And he was a fourth rounder though. That's not a surefire going to be a, a good big league starter. I mean, to, to turn him into what they've been able to do. And again, players deserve credit in this, too. This is not just a team turning a player into this. It's that's chaos. Like when we vote for manager of the year, almost always we're voting for which players overperformed. <laughs> right. And the manager didn't build the team. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to misplace credit in this work. But uh, I, w- I would definitely think that in terms of, of player development, the Brewers uh, belong in that conversation. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I wonder, uh, the, you know, the Braves are very interesting to me because um, I don't know why, but I just tend to think of those as scouting wins. But, you know, Ozzy Albies, Acuna was, you know, a top signing, you know. Uh, but like Michael Harris, like, you know, they they definitely have uh, something that's going well in player development as well. Absolutely. I, I think a lot of this just to me, puts the focus back on how important scouting is. Like even if you have a very sharp group of people in your analytics department, you need eyes on players. You need the ability to merge these two worlds together effectively. And I think the organizations that do that, the organizations that are not running thin on scouting are still doing really well in these other facets and and finding different ways to dig up players that can exceed expectations. I think that's, that's where a lot of these success stories kind of, begin somebody saw someone with the potential on a field somewhere and said hey maybe if we take this player here and do these things we can actually turn this player into an everyday player or a possible star i mean international free agency deserves its own series of episodes we're not even going to go down that rabbit hole like oh and it's so like morally bereft and disgusting and there's 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 a lot of issues there you know like how many of these current braves uh, were signed by John Coppolella, who was like banned from baseball for his practices. Right. And even thinking about the the credit game too. I mean, Chris Young 
was the GM for the Rangers starting in December of 2020. John Daniels had been previously promoted to president of baseball operations. He was just let go last summer. How much of what the Rangers have done as an organization should still be credited to John Daniels? I mean, some of the time they were working together. That's why I would I would try to stay away from like the sort of the, the the myth of the CEO. Where like yes, the CEO is important. I did say earlier they're setting up all these processes, but you know if we're doing this, it's more of a front office ranking than it is like a GM ranking, um, because it makes it even worse. Like you know. It makes it even worse to try to like, yeah, how, how valuable is Chris Young? <laughs> like, oh, I don't know is the answer. Um, I, 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 but also like teams that are in flux are just super interesting to me. Like the, uh, the Orioles, you know, um, you know, they, they had a lot of high picks, right? So when you, when you look at the Orioles as they're pres- presently constructed, you're looking at some of the, uh, the accrual of, of high picks like Adley Rutschman, you know, is, you know what how much how much juice do you give the front office of the orioles for picking adley rutschman when like he just seemed like a consensus one one pick nobody had a bad word to say about him and then he made it through you know and he did everything he was supposed to and he's been great i mean you have to give them a little bit of credit for scouting and a little bit of credit player development but that one just seems like hey you got the one one pick and one one picks like more often than not work out i mean i'll put it on a scale to uh say if uh if you give the nationals any credit at all for taking bryce harper one one back in the day i mean one tick more credit goes to the orioles for taking rutschman that's about it that was a no-brainer sort of pick i think i kind of look at what they do in, in the college football world and think maybe that's closer to the right way where you can look at where a player was entering the league. So in in that process, coming out of high school, you're a three-star, four-star, five-star recruit if you're a player that, that colleges are excited about, right? How many of those players get through and, and make it to the NFL from each program? And if you take a three-star player as a college and you turn that player into an NFL player, that says a lot about your coaching and that player's work ethic and all those things. That's player development to me is taking a 45 and making him a 50, you know? You have to have consensus scouting grades going in and then look at results coming out. Yeah, because otherwise we might just be testing Baseball America. If we just throw Baseball America in there, you know, like we just might just be testing their system as opposed to actually getting at what we're trying to get at. <laughs> yeah, so you would just need a lot of well-informed opinions and evaluations mashed together at the beginning just to have a good sense of where everybody was truly starting and then look at the final results and say, okay, this team did the best job taking players that were projected to be 35s and 40s and actually turn them into big leaguers or regulars or above average regulars, whatever, you know, whatever your various cutoffs are. And I, and I think in, in Baltimore, you're seeing like, I, I don't, I don't want to give them short shrift and just be like, well, I just got high picks because <laughs> no, that you're, wasn't it. you're seeing, because you're seeing some wins, waiver wire wins, Jorge Mateo. I, I think that was a waiver acquisition. Um, if not, it was a, it was a, it was a small, uh, small trade, you know, um, you know, and then Tyler Wells, uh, was, did not cost them much to acquire. And, uh, and he's a major league starting pitcher. Kyle Bradish, uh, was a fourth rounder that, you know, has gone up and down, but has figured it out. Um, you know, so they, you know, Cedric Mullins was a 13th rounder, but that was 2015. So that's, you know, previous, uh previous organization or whatever but the new organization may have been part of like hey stop switch hitting right i mean same could be said maybe <laughs> for austin hayes right a third rounder in 2016 who's, who's now having barreling the ball season. more than ever so no there's a there are a lot of things the orioles have been doing very well that i don't think either one of us were trying to imply that the success they are having now is the result of just being bad and picking early they have found players from all different sources. Ramon Urias was another waiver claim, just like Jorge Mateo. He won a gold glove last year at a new position. Yeah. Like That's pretty darn good to find a player like that on waivers. And yes, there's a, a little bit of a benefit that comes from being bad. You have the luxury of just seeing what happens with interesting players, whereas teams that are trying to compete can't necessarily do that. But it's still important to get those players right. The waiver wire piece might be the easiest, right? Because you have a very fixed price. I mean, I guess what's a little bit tough about waiver wire is like your position in the standings. Mm-hmm. 
Like part of the <laughs> like tanking, you get first crack easier, at those players. Easier to do the waiver wire game if you get first crack at them. But uh, there are teams that sort of establish themselves as waiver wire hawks. The Dodgers, again, dang it, <laughs> Evan Phillips for free off the waiver wire. You know, I got I got DMs uh, from analysts being like, "Damn it, I wanted Evan Phillips." You know, <laughs> um, and uh, he's their closer now. You know, so I think I think of when I think of waiver wire kings, I think of the Giants. Um, you know, Mike Yastrzemski and, and, uh, I don't, I think Lamont Wade was a, was a trade, but they, they, they seem to be always like my, I have an email that I get from the giants with all their roster moves and, you know, they're, they're always acquiring somebody off waivers and DFAing somebody. It seems like every day I get one of those emails. So they are super active on that. I wonder, you know, uh, the Pirates, uh, you know, they seem to be in, 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 like improving their pitching development processes. They're, they're starting to have some hitters there. But they also last year just lost the most amount of players in the Rule 5 draft in the history of the Rule 5 draft. So, like, there's something going on there, too, where, uh, you know, that's the opposite side of the waivers thing where you're like, hmm. Maybe we need to be have a better waiver strategy or better. Um, it, it's a way. It, another way of looking at it is roster management. You know who doesn't lose players uh, to waivers is the Rays because they will. They just traded Xavier Edwards. The reason they traded Xavier Edwards, who they got in the Blake Snell trade, was not necessarily they think that Xavier Edwards is terrible. It's because Xavier Edwards has to be put on the forty man next year. And they don't, they don't want to be, uh, you know, a day before having to put him on the 40 man and go, Hey, does anybody want Xavier Edwards? And then everybody else in the league can be like, yeah, for nothing. Right. You know, it's a leverage. So a year before they trade him for something so that they, they don't look as desperate. That's what the Rays do. The guardians, uh, hold the line on their, on their, their guys like that and then end up sometimes just releasing them. So there's a there's a just a a, a bold like a, a a bigger thing here that's waiver and roster strategy. You can almost put it all together uh, somehow and and look at players lost in Rule Five drafts, players lost on waivers, players gained on waivers. You could probably add up that fairly easy. I think this might be one of the easier parts of what we're talking about. Well, it's interesting is Roster Resource actually has a tab that I was going to make myself. So I'm glad I don't have to do the work. <laughs> you can sort by homegrown, free agent, trade, waivers, and rule five, where every team got each player on its current 26-man roster from. The Orioles actually have the most players from waivers on their roster. They have five players out of their 26 they got from waivers. Where is this page? It is a tab on the roster resource breakdown. It's the breakdowns tab. Yes. Breakdowns. Look at this. Yeah. Homegrown. Houston. Cleveland. And interestingly, though, Royals third, which is, you might be like, oh, player development scouting, except they're not good. They are struggling. And interesting, too, they only have two players in their roster via trade, which is the lowest total in the league you have to have players people want to get a trade done that's part of it i mean it's it's weird the top of the trade thing is so obvious if you're listening right now just think think in your head of who you think has the most players on their roster uh via trade and and amazingly the first name that might have popped in your head is fifth seattle (laughs) is fifth with 12 uh, Miami, I think uh, they always seem open for business. They also have a sort of like a difference in pitching and hitting quality. So that seems like they're rife for trading. Oakland is third. That's very obvious. Not only are they in the middle of a rebuild process, but they trade all the time. They're always trading. Yep. Uh, Tampa, second, always trading, 15. Number one, might surprise people, is trade. it's tied with Tampa, is Milwaukee. And that's why I have a hard time sometimes adjudicating and and judging the Milwaukee front office because I look at the hitters and I say, where's the player development process on the hitters? Uh, What's the overall process here? They're not really a free agency team. I think they more often than not win their trades, though. And that's something you can say about Milwaukee, I think. How would you grade a trade? How far down to the roots would you go? I guess I'm thinking of a trade yeah. tree, right? Because trades go on forever. They really do. There are some trades you can trace back 20 or 30 years because of club control and how that works, which is pretty amazing. Especially if you involve Oakland because they'll trade 
one guy for three guys and then you know two of those guys will work out and then they'll trade one those guys before they're you know so that trade just tree just keeps on going and going if you were going to grade trades the the original source trade the first part of the trade the beginning before you get all these branches that would carry more weight than each branch each subsequent branch would be less valuable even though it still matters maybe you fix it to the biggest star right so the, the trade is defined by who is the biggest star at the time of the trade. That's it. Done. Right? I think th- there's something there. But it would be, it trades is maybe the most impossible part of what we're, what we're trying to describe of what you're doing. Um, and also, it changes over time. I, I've had very different opinions of the Luis Urias for uh, Trent Grisham trade. Right? Yes. Over time. And I even forget the, the rest of it. It was... Eric Lauer went to the Brewers. Eric Lauer and, and Zach Davies went to the Padres. Zach Davies just, I mean, just a just an awesome trade that actually, when you sum it all up, doesn't mean that much <laughs> or hasn't so far, right? <laughs> it's, it's been a wash, I think, in terms of net value as of, as of today. I'd say it's pretty much even with time uh, for it to still kind of swing. But seemed so exciting at times, like oh yeah, the Brewers won this one because they got an infielder. That can hit for power. He's a shortstop. What are you talking about? You know? And then it was like, oh, well, the Padres won this. Trent Grisham is a plus defense, power, and speed outfielder. And then it was like, well, Trent Grisham forgot how to hit. So it must be the Brewers that won. (laughs) So just, you know, when do you, it's a little bit like the timing process on, you know, on, on player development and scouting is when do you just, when do you stop looking at that trade and decide a winner on it? <laughs> yeah, it's complicated a lot by injuries and, and lost time, too. Arias has missed a, a bunch of time this year with an injury. He missed some time, I think, back in 2020, the year after the trade happened. I loved the Pablo Lopez trade for the Twins. You know, they get Pablo Lopez. They give up a uh, uh, an infielder in Luis Arise that you know hits for for singles, but doesn't play defense well. Doesn't run the bases well. Uh, was even being moved off of second base to first base. He'd be the weirdest first baseman in the league. Um, and I I like that for trade. And I still like Pablo Lopez, but Arise seems to be you know exactly what Miami needed in some ways. So. Um, you know, that one's a difficult, like there's team fit too, right? There is. Yeah. I mean, I think in the case of just to use the same trade you brought up before, if you're looking at the Davies, Lauer, Grisham, and Arias swap, some of that was creating a little bit of financial flexibility for other players in the roster who were going to hit arbitration, mm-hmm. right? So getting rid of Davies and getting the club control from Lauer, that mattered. To Oscar Hernandez for Eric Swanson, you say, well, obviously the Mariners won that trade. Um, and, but then you look back and they, the Blue Jays actually did spend the money that they saved, uh, in that deal. Right. So you kind of have to think about like, well, what else happened because of the trade who played in the other spots that were vacated? That's another way to consider it. That I think makes it even more complicated, which that's the moral of the story today. It's super complicated. It's hard to do these jobs. It's also hard to grade these jobs for all the reasons that we are. The, the easiest one might be um, free agency, and uh, you know, just because we have a, a structure there. And, and but the thing is, it also is a structure that you know, frankly, pisses people off. That there's a lot of people who hate it. But dollars per war is is basically you just look at dollars spent in free agency, and you look at wins above replacement that they acquired in free agency. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is a way to measure how efficient teams are at spending in free agency. And it, it actually seems like the, the, the one thing that you are doing there is testing the model a little bit, right? Cause the teams themselves have their own wins above replacement number, right? So they will have seen this, every of these transactions, you'll be testing fan war or baseball reference war to some extent, but at least there's a structure there that's pretty well established and you can say and in terms of like getting great players on the cheap are there teams that uh that that come to mind um well i mean i think tampa like i think the zach eflin signing that was the biggest signing of their career you know and of their of tampa's uh, organizational history and it it seems to be doing pretty well, and it was not a big signing, you know, for you know the Phillies or the Dodgers or whatever. Yeah, I think there's a few different ways to look at this too. I mean, you could consider 
the short-term deals, I always think the Dodgers being just good at finding the, the pitchers who want to spend a year figuring things out. It was Tyler Anderson a year ago. It was Andrew Heaney a year ago. Giants have a little bit of that reputation. Giants have some Redong. of that too. I mean, J.D. Martinez is doing it right now. I think there'll mm. be a lot more interest in J.D. Martinez this coming winter than there was this past winter. And there is a little bit there with the coaching staff, right? Where you mm-hmm. sign a guy for one year and $5 million and you have a great coaching staff and that's why he outproduced and that's why he made you look good in free agencies because you knew you could rely on your coaching staff. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic and you'll get a one year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. But the other part of this is it's been such a big part of the baseball conversation on the internet in the history of the internet is we know that, yes, relatively free agency, big free agent contracts especially, are not good values, right? Seven, eight, nine, ten years of players at 25 or $30 million a year, the end of the contract will not be a, air quotes, good value because by age 37, 38, the player will not be the player that you signed back when they were 28, 29, 30. And we know a lot of players are already post-peak when they reach free agency. So I think you have to look at the willingness to give players big piles of money and kind of evaluate those deals almost in a different way than you do the one- and two-year deals where you're you're trying to accomplish very different things there. I mean, you're trying to get a star, and so you're willing to overpay because you're getting a star. And and a team like Tampa is just never going to do that. So, like, yeah, if you do a dollars-per-war list, Tampa will be near the top. But does that mean that they nail free agency better than anybody? It's maybe, I think that's sort of what you're getting at. Yeah, so think think about Marcus Simeon as an example. Probably one of the most underrated big free agent signings so far. We're in year two of a seven-year deal, and he was off to a slow start. Around this time last year, people were panicking about that contract around this time last year. Now it's it's like, oh, great, $25 a year? Yeah, sign us up. We'll we'll do that forever. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. It's probably going to be very good for a while. And then eventually he's going to be more of a league average sort of guy and it's not going to cause any problems for them. It's going to be fine. Right. So you're still going to have problems of cutoff, right? Because you're never going to be able to say, okay, all the contracts are over. (laughs) Now we can look at everybody. You're still going to have problems of like some of these contracts are in the middle where they look better and some of them are near the end when they look bad. Like, you know. If you sign players like this, seven year, eight year deals, and you go to the postseason, and you go to the postseason multiple times in the early part of the deal, and the, the player is actually undervalued, which happens on some of these long-term deals. Those seem like great years in terms of outcome on two fronts. One, the player exceeded the salary, which, again, I feel gross breaking it down this way, but we're trying to quantify something that's hard to quantify. And then two, the actual success of the team has that sort of added business benefit. So I don't think the the playoff success is necessarily part of the calculation very often either like you spent money on players but you also went to the postseason that matters yeah, like think about think about um i mean 
if it worked in San Diego, then it would be great. <laughs> if it doesn't work in San Diego, it'll look terrible by all of our metrics because they have three $300 million guys and da-da-da-da-da. Um, the, the, another way I think of this is, you know, when we were thinking about trades, like the Aroldis Chapman for Glaber Torres trade, you know, that changed baseball. You are not going to get a relief. You're not going to get a middle infield prospect near the big leagues of that quality for your reliever anymore because of that trade. I'm pretty sure. I, 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 I think that trade changed baseball. However, the Cubs won it all, and they hadn't in like a hundred years. Right. And if, if that's the difference, and the margins are small in winning titles and not winning titles, if that's the difference, are you upset that you gave up too much in a trade? Is the trade bad? <laughs> I, I think it's really hard to evaluate it independent of the actual outcome on the field, but it's also hard to attribute with a lot of accuracy, just how much of a difference that move made versus the alternative move or no move at all. So we have to put the most basic number in our appraisal. Wins. Wins. Yes. And playoff wins. Mm, yes, but only a sort of equal weighting to wins. Really? I don't like as a separate category where they get a whole, I, I would almost throw them in with wins. It's Maybe an opportunity to recruit total, more. Total wins. Total wins, counting the postseason. That's that's how I'm comfortable doing it. And this is because, and this is where I differ from a lot of fans, possibly. Uh, I know that this happens every postseason. We have this discussion. But for me, a team that wins 95 games and wins their first round playoff uh, series was a success. I don't disagree with you, but I think a lot of people do. Yeah, yes. <laughs> because we we have, uh, I think, in, in a lot of aspects of fanhood, and we have evolved or probably digressed more into this state of championship or bust. We didn't win the title. Failure, right? I mean, yeah. It, it ha- it's every But every that means 29 sport. teams are a failure every year. That's just depressing, man. That's not even how a bell curve works. I had a friend tell me it's not a dynasty unless you, it, it, it's not really worth it unless you win three and 10. And I'm like, so like, th- there's like three teams that have ever been good. Well, like ever <laughs> three dynasties or whatever by that definition. And that's, that's fine. You can, you can make up more <laughs> subcategories of great teams until you're exhausted. And I'm not going right. yeah. to be the one fighting back on that. I'm more, I'm just here to, Try to understand what's happening on the field and and learn more. But about total it. wins, total wins gives you credit for going to the playoffs because you add more wins. But it doesn't give you like it. It, it gives you a little bit more credit, right? It's like mm-hmm. if you think about it. It's like ninety five wins. That's the big number, and then an extra thirteen. Well, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> the the other example here. I mean, Lorenzo Cain. Thinking about the recent Brewers, he had a five year deal. $80 million, $16 million a year, which for an age 32 to 36 center fielder, I think they knew at the time, okay, yeah, maybe years four and five aren't going to be as good as years one, two, and three. Year three happened to be 2020, so there's nothing to glean from that. If you if you look at that, that's like the perfect deal of front-loaded, great production, back-end, unfortunately, wasn't working out. But you sort of knew that going in, and it was part of this window that's been open for them for a few years where it, he filled a huge need on that roster. So they spent $10 million a win, uh, $10 million per win. And uh, in our uh, thing, it would look like a, a slight failure because at that time, wins w- would be costing sort of eight to $9 million. They were just not a that shade bad. below that. Yeah, but it, yeah, not that bad. Again, there's a lost season in there, a 2020 right. season that... Another thing of, that would screw up all our metrics. Of, yeah, that's that's what it does. <laughs> so yeah, a, a ton there to uh, to dig into beyond this episode. But I wanted to get to your A1 from today. Where are the strikeouts coming from? And a ton of work went into this story. And I, I guess I, I want to give you the floor. Well, I think that this is... Uh, what's interesting is that this is a, a culmination of things I've written about since 2015. And... The, the most recent entry point was that um, if you look at uh, players in bins of fly ball rates, um, you could see 
that the top fly ball rate bin does the best, has the best OPS. And so you could say, you know, oh, hey, everybody should be hitting fly balls. So then I started talking to the guys who hit the most fly balls. And, and if you listen to rates and barrels, I have this particular nervousness that gets around me when a hitter hits half his balls in the, in the air. A 50% fly ball, I start to be like, ooh, I don't know about this. Because the batting average gets really shaky. It gets down to like 190 sometimes. And their strikeout rate starts pushing the roof. And I feel like that guy can be pitched to. You know, that guy's got an uppercut swing. And so I talked to all the guys who have 50% fly ball rates. And guess what? They do all have uppercut swings. It was Kyle Schwarber and Lamont Wade Jr. and, uh, and Cody Bellinger. And, uh, and so when I talked to those guys, though, they all talk about, I don't want to have this big of an uppercut. I need to hit the high fastball. I need to, in order to stay in this game, I need to find a strategy to hit the five flat, high fastball. And so they said it's more about hitting the ball hard and figuring out ways to hit every place in the zone. And so that's sort of when a light bulb went off for me where I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of people who blame the uppercut swing on, you know, strikeouts, all these strikeouts in the game on the uppercut swing. But when I talk to the guys who do the most uppercutting, they don't want to do all this uppercutting. And when I look around the game with the more sophisticated statistics that we have, it doesn't actually look like there's a ton of uppercut swings around baseball. Um, and so uh, I, stood, I went back to a piece that I was looking at in 2015, which is um, that power lives out in front of the plate. So if you, if you graph you know, the distance in front of the plate to behind the plate, and you look at, you know, where power, where home runs live, more home runs are hit out in front of the plate than, than uh, over the plate. And uh, that has something to do with how the swing is shaped. If you think about a swing, um, you know, or at least the modern way of thinking of a swing is that you want to be flat through the zone so that if you hit in the zone, in the strike zone somewhere over the plate, you're going to hit a line drive. But if you catch the ball out front, it's that part of your swing that starts to finish. Everyone finishes a little bit higher, right? So when you're finished a little bit higher, you're straight through the zone and then bing, you got that little up. Uh, and that's where home runs are, is where you're kind of flat, but then you catch it right in that bing and it's a home run. And so there's, a, I think the sort of modern philosophy of hitting is uh, flat through the zone. And if you catch it out in front, then it's a homer. And if you catch it in the zone, it's a line drive. They do want to hit line drives. I promise. People are like, oh, you know, batters are okay with striking out and, you know, they don't care. No, they care. They don't want to strike out. They don't, they don't want to strike out. They want to be flat through the zone and hit line drives. And they also want to maybe catch it out in front. And that's the big thing that's happening is if you catch it out in front, you hit the homer. If you want to catch the ball out in front, you have to start earlier. If you start earlier and the velo goes up every year. That's the math. That's where the strikeout rate is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, stuff just keeps getting better. So there's your other <laughs> part of the moving exactly. target here. Yeah. So, you know, as velo goes up, you know, and then as they're shaping breaking balls off of their velo, you know, that's that, you know, I'm trying to start out front. I'm trying to get it out front. So I'm going to start a little earlier. It's coming in at 96 now instead of 95. And that's that sort of, it's a spatiotemporal relationship, but that that 4D relationship between time and space and movement and velo and my swing, uh, that's creating the strikeout problem. But if you want to blame uh, one person in particular, uh, you know, it's probably the pitchers. It's the velo. <laughs> and we just crossed, uh, this is the first year, 94 miles an hour is 94.1 is the average fastball this year. And that's the first time since we've tracked it in 2002. When we started tracking in 2002, it was 89. 89. That was only 20 years ago. And now, 20 years later, we've crossed 94. And I thought, I've thought at times, I've looked at it, and it's like flattened in places. I'm like, oh, that's it. That's all the arm can handle. We can only sit 93.5. And then it just keeps going up. So I, I wonder, like, you see guys hitting 102, do you think we'd ever just sit 102 or sit 100 and throw 102 and just have starters that can like sit 100? I mean, we've seen uh, Spencer Strider sit, you know, 97 for innings. Hunter Green is sitting 98, 99 for, for five innings. Yeah, and we're seeing, I mean, you see with starters sitting we higher. just get more and more Hunter Greens, more and more Spencer Striders. More relievers pumping like 102s, 103s, and 104s in games. And you're like, what? Like Ben, ben, ben Joyce. Joyce. 
Yeah. It's got some movement too. It's not it's not straight as a string. It's not <laughs> it's not an easy Oh, it's 102, but it's it's straight. Like, no, it's not. Yeah. It's got a little bit of yeah. arm side movement to it. I mean, Jordan Hicks throws a 102 mile an hour sinker with like 14 inches of horizontal movement. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the you know, I think the thing is you're just gonna have more and more of those types. And so the average fastball is going to go up. And, the, and then you look at the bottom uh, part of the velo, like a lot of those guys are veterans on their way out. You know, your Zach Greinke types who are, who are, you know, they're shaping it and they're doing the best they can to stay in the game. But, you know, uh, you know when Zach Greinke leaves, an 89-mile-an-hour fastball will, le- will leave the game and a 103-mile-an-hour fastball will enter the game. <laughs> that average for the league will tick up just a little bit yeah, as a so. result of that trade-off. But I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I don't like... People talk sometimes about, like, you know, every ball over 100 is an automatic ball, and you're like... Really? Oh, something about that. Like, is there any other sport that says you can't run this fast? You can't no. jump this high? Like, what if basketball is like, nope, you, your head was above the rim... <laughs> I played in a softball league where the fences were too close. And instead of changing the fences, which would have solved this problem, and maybe there wasn't uh-huh. enough space to push them back, you could have made them or higher. Money to change the fences. Money, all those factors. The rule was you could hit seven home runs in a game as a team, and then they became outs at that point. I was like, that's dumb. <laughs> the fun thing I want to do, I can only hit, we can only hit seven of those as a team. And it was, it was too easy to hit home runs at the park. I, I am not saying that. So this then was everyone good. had to try and figure out how to say, hit singles. But the hardest thing in softball is to wait on a pitch. You Dude. have to be like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> there were probably so many teams that tried to save homers for when there were more guys on base and then they didn't use them all. It's like, just, just hit them. <laughs> Unless you're really good, just hit the seven and be happy you hit seven. That's the truth. Yeah. I think the the velocity question, though, it makes me think about other sports, right? You think about Olympic sports, high jump or 100-meter dash, and all those things, like the records keep getting broken and broken and broken you know and broken. The, 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 like the people who are running the marathon are like the winners of the marathon, like the very best marathoners, their, their pace is like 4.10 or 4, like the, they're running like four-minute miles for 26 of them. Right. They're... <laughs> They're running marathon paces that used to be the record for the mile (laughs) a long time ago. And all the, all the record milers are now jumping into the marathon and just being like, I'll just do what I did for the mile for 26 times. (laughs) So I know eventually you can't literally can't do it faster at some point, but we're, I don't think we're there with velo for pitchers. And the problem is I don't think we're solving the, how do we keep guys healthy while doing this? That's not fixed either. So I think Velo is going to keep going up and injuries are going to keep tracking along with them, barring some sort of unforeseen development. The thing we kind of joked about at the end of rates and barrels was, you know, in this year where Major League Baseball has made a lot of adjustments to the rules, the pitch clock being the one that really does a lot for pitchers and their health and how they work. They wouldn't dare, you know, move the mound back or do something like that in the near future. Right. I mean, because the the thing you wrote in the story is that that would change movement on pitches. That could be just as problematic. You you might have a league of breaking balls that have more breaking two feet balls. to move. Yeah. <laughs> Filthier breaking balls means more breaking balls, which could mean even more strikeouts. So that might not be the solution that some people want it to be either. And who knows if they would actually consider doing that anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, th- and they're testing it and they've tested it. And what's weird is they tested the pitch clock and they tested all the way through and it made it. You know, they've tested to baseball's credit. One thing I will tell, will say in their credit is they test these things. They go, they have the, the independent leagues where they test things. They have the minor leagues where they test things. They test them and try to see what the outcomes will be. But it is interesting that they've been testing this and it has, like, we haven't heard more. Like, it's not like, oh, yeah, in single A, they move the mound back. As soon as you hear that, where like, oh, in double A, they move the mound back, it's coming. Like, you know, automatic balls and strikes has been moving steadily through the minor leagues. It's probably going to come up as a challenge system, but it's in the minor leagues in a lot of spots. And so that's that seems inevitable, automatic balls and strikes. And maybe there can be something there with automatic balls and strikes where you play with the zone uh, to, to, to mess with strikeouts. 
But the the problem with messing with the zone is there's always unintended consequences. It's it's not like you can just make the zone smaller and there'll be fewer strikeouts. It's there's there's no silver bullet with the with the zone. I, I, I don't believe it because you have to kind of think through it. Just think about like the incentives when if the zone is smaller, what what pitchers are going to do? Will they will they come closer to the middle of the zone? Then why why would pitchers why would hitters swing less? Right. You know. And if the hitters are swinging just as much as before, are they necessarily always going to make more contact, or is it just going to be the same amount of strikeouts? Mm. Like we've we've all, another way of thinking is this: we've had uh, changes to the zone before, and we are, we seem to always find an equilibrium of eight 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 to nine percent walks. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's been eight to nine percent walks over the history of baseball. How is that possible with all the different zones we've had? For as much as strikeouts have changed, to see walks remain pretty consistent is strange it's 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 it has something to do with just like how how much tolerance we have for walks like you know like how much tolerance pitchers have for walks and like you know it's it seems to have just that's the equilibrium that baseball has found is eight to nine percent walks that's it this year was up a little bit early on but then it's a regular old year again yeah well check out the a1 it's up on the athletic already so be sure to read that the athletic.com slash baseball show gets you a subscription for two dollars a month if you don't already have a subscription you can find Eno on twitter at Eno saris you can find me at derek van riper we got some ellie de la cruz talk coming at you on friday we've also got a little deep dive into alec manoa and the blue jays coming as well so that's going to do it for this episode of the athletic baseball show we're back with you on friday Always got the green light here.